yes, his wounds has, has paid all my ransom. That's the demonstration of God's love for us. Please do take your seats. This morning we continue with our studies through the book of Romans. And today we come to verse 6 to 11. I'll read from verse, uh, verse 1. Um, so that you may see that flow of thought. That uh, what I gave as the fifth point last Sunday is going to be further expounded uh, by five more things to be said as the proof of God's love that has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Please hear the word of God. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, excuse me, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we've, we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. A fact has already been made that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There is nothing sweeter than to be loved. Even when we are reassured of love by evil people, even when those planting love to us may be uh, mentally ill, mentally unstable, it's still so lovely. Back in Meru, I have a friend who is mentally disturbed. And one day he came to me and told me how he loved me. It was so sweet. I make efforts whenever I go back to my village to spend some time with him and talk with him whenever I see him. Because it does mean something. Now, because this is true then, how much more when God assures us in his word that he loves us 
that his love has been poured into our hearts. I would say much, much more, isn't it? To be loved by man is such a good thing, but to be loved by God is way better. God says that he has poured his love upon us. But the question is, what is the proof? What is the demonstration? How has God demonstrated that love for us? What is the proof that this divine love has been poured into our hearts? Five things are said in the next six verses to show that divine love has been poured without measure in the hearts of believers. God's love, the atonement of Christ, are so, so closely woven that the strongest demonstration and proof of God's love is that Christ died. Even with all the, the, the limitations that we have as human beings, even with all our comorbidities, our weaknesses, our ungodliness, our sinfulness, our enmity with God that was there before we were saved. God's love was poured even in that condition. And then we were conveyed from the domain of that wretchedness. Now, this is the progression of these verses. Paul argues from the less to the greater. When he says, for if while we were enemies, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Then he says, much, much, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So enemies are reconciled. Will those who are reconciled not be saved? They would be saved. And then he says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. If Christ's death is able to do so much, how much more his life? So, these verses are here to assure us of God's love. Remember, this is one of the benefits we saw last Sunday. That's one of the benefits of that flow or spring from justification, adoption, and sanctification includes being assured. Of God's love. And so that's what he does here. He's assuring us of his love. But before we even consider that love of God, I still want to point out five things that was true of us before we were converted. We are described as having been weak, as having been ungodly. Say in verse 6. We are described as having been 
sinners in verse 7. We are assured, uh, we, are, we, are, we were ungodly there in verse 6. And then we, are, we were under God's wrath, verse 9. And then we were reconciled to God, we who were his enemies. Think about that. Who would want to waste his love to this kind, kind of a category of people? Enemies. Sinners. Ungodly. And a God's wrath. It's not the kind of people you would want to spend your life on, is it? But that's what the Bible says. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So number one, Christ saved us while we were weak. While we were weak, powerless. While we were sin-rendered. While we were not only totally depraved, but also totally unable. Because, you know, when sin entered into the world, it did not only render us depraved, it also rendered us totally unable. Total inability is the result of total depravity. So, total depravity means that we do not have uh, any good, any spiritual good in us. Total inability says that we didn't have any strength, any ability to do any good, any spiritual good. And Paul has already described that condition earlier on. And so before our conversion, we were totally weak, unable to do ourselves any spiritual good. And uh, writing to the Ephesian church, before they were converted, he says that they were dead in their trespasses and sins. Dead, they couldn't stir. Dead, they couldn't think. Dead, they couldn't seek God. Dead, completely dead. And Paul, in chapter 6, describes the condition of the Romans. And all of us, before conversion, are slaves there in chapter 6 of Romans. So, weak us, who are recipients of God's love. This divine love, all loves excelling, is especially shown to be great when we consider the condition of those to whom this love is directed. Not directed to the strong, but rather, it is to the weak, shame the strong. It is not given to the powerful, but to the powerless, to shame the powerful. It is to the ignoble, to shame the noble. 
by worldly standards. This divine love is to the low and despised so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, as Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, 27, 29, 29. So Christ did not wait for us to be better or to be stronger. He didn't wait for us to be stronger in resisting sin. But he saved us though we were in a weak condition, though we were powerless. He saved us when we couldn't do nothing to save ourselves. He saved us when we were laden with sin and guilt and rendered helpless and hopeless. He saved us when we desperately needed to be saved. He saves weak sinners. So you're there listening to the word of God and you're unsaved. It is when you begin thinking about how weak and helpless and hopeless you are in that condition that you call out for divine help that you are brought into this love of God. And in fact, it is the love of God that compels you to feel your need of Christ. So you're sitting there listening to this message and you say, Pastor, you don't know. I am bad. I have lived in this sin that you know nothing about for too long. I tell you, love divine, all loves excelling. How deep the Father's love for you if you would believe in Christ. I tell you that you're not beyond redemption, even in that condition. Christ saves such as you, for he saved such as me. He saved me. Though I was weak, though I, I wallowed in my own sins, he saved the weak. He saves the weak. And he will always save the weak. And he can save you too. If you know your plight, and you've heard of one who can rescue and deliver and save you from your plight, why would you delay in coming to him for help? When one is weak, he or she calls out for Help, and I'm telling you, call out for divine help. Call out for this divine love to be poured into your heart. I'm telling you, you're unable, you are too weak to save yourself. You're unable to save yourself. You cannot save yourself. I tell you, there is one who is strong and able. He says in Hebrews 7.25 that, he is able to save to the uttermost all who draw near him by faith. Call upon him while he is near. He is able, he is willing to save all who call on his name. 
Christ saved us while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So the second thing there is that Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. You might think that Christ Jesus came into the world to save good people. Uh, but I ask, why would good people need salvation? They are good. But the question is, who is good anyway? The Lord said that no one is good except God. In, Matthew chapter, uh, in Mark chapter 10, verse 18. First of all, remember that it is Christ. The Lord's anointed. The well-beloved Son. The only Son of God. The Son of Man. This is David's Son, yet David's Lord. He died. Because that's what the Bible says here. At the right time, Christ died. He died the most shameful uh, death. Death on a cross. He was hung on a tree. He took away the curse of sin upon the tree. For cursed is the man who is hung upon the tree. But then his curse was for the sin of those who believe in him. He was crucified, publicly put to shame to take away the shame you had for your sins. And then you notice For whom he died, it is for the ungodly. The Bible says that he died for. And that word for is translated to mean on behalf of. And there are people who say, well, this does not mean instead of. It means on behalf of. But really, there isn't much difference. Because he died on the behalf of the ungodly. He died the death that the ungodly should have died. He died instead of the ungodly. He died their death. And, and that, this is the sum and the substance of the gospel. Christ died for the ungodly. What is the gospel? The gospel is Christ died for the ungodly. He was a substitute for sinners. His was the atoning death. And we discover then the time when he died for the ungodly. The Bible describes it as the right time. At the right time. The Bible says, Christ was born of a woman when? At the fullness of time. Paul tells the Galatians, Galatians 4, 4. At the right time, he was born. And at the right time, he died. And I remember preaching through the gospel of Mark, trying to demonstrate to you here how appropriate that exact 
time and day and month that Christ Jesus died. For he died as the Passover lamb. And the significance of the Passover lamb was salvation. He died as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world at the right time. But it was also the right time in terms of the redemptive history. This was the time designated by the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the Son to die to accomplish salvation for those whom the Father had given him and for those whom the Spirit will regenerate. It was the right time. Not die late or early, but at the right redemptive time. So the divine timelines were met. The purpose of God was accomplished, not just in terms of what was needed to be done, but also at the specified time that God, in his divine timeline, had set. And you discern here, from that statement in verse 6, the purpose for what he died. It was to pay the penalty of sin. That's why the Bible speaks in terms of he died for the ungodly. He died and actually paid the penalty due to the ungodly. He took God's wrath to the last drag for the ungodly. God's wrath was propitiated for the ungodly. It was fully turned away. God's justice was fully satisfied for the ungodly. God was pleased with the sacrifice offered for the ungodly. It must be said that the design and the purpose of the death of Christ was planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son, applied by the Spirit. So Christ then died for those whom the Father gave him. He did not die for everyone. Otherwise, everyone should be in heaven, should be going to heaven. But as you know, there would be people in hell because Christ did not die for them. Christ died, and when he died for the ungodly, the ungodly will be saved, as we will see later. He died for everyone who has ever lived, who will ever live, but was given to him by the Father. And so he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. John 6.37 He died for a people. Him not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Not as a ransom for all, not as a ransom for a few, not as a ransom for many. Uh, I mean for, 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 
for no one or for just one, but for many. So when the Lord laid down his life for the sheep, for his church, that is for those who are elect or chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world, it is for this that he gave his life by paying the full and acceptable ransom. And so he secured their redemption. The question for you is, are you among that number? Are you among those for whom Christ died? Did Christ die for you or for someone else? Everyone wants to believe that Christ died for them. But the only sure way of knowing that Christ died for you is to trust in him and to depend on his sacrifice. To know that his death was for you and to believe that he is able to save you and to call upon his name for redemption, for salvation, for forgiveness of your sins. It is to receive his sacrifice as yours. So when you believe in him, then repent of your sins to him, turning away from them. And when you are in Christ, you will not die that death. If you are in Christ, if you are a believer in Christ, Christ died your death. And you will not be required to die again. Because that death was died. Jesus Christ died it for you. And by dying that death that I deserve, that you deserved as a believer, it means when justice is satisfied, God's wrath is propitiated, we are set free from death and have been set to, on life. We've been set on the path to life. Then we hear verse 7 and 8. Having learned that he died for the ungodly, we hear that one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The demonstration of his divine love is Christ's death for sinners. Sinners. We have seen it was weak and ungodly, and now it is sinners. Is Paul here making a distinction between? Is Paul here, first of all, saying that there are righteous people and good people? Is that what he is of necessity say? The point he is making is. It's not even so much a distinction between a righteous person and a good person, but that Christ died for none of the above. He didn't die for righteous people. He didn't die for good people. He died for the ungodly. He died for the weak. He died for sinners. 
Now, uh, the, difference, the difference between a righteous person, no one will scarcely die for him, but one may perhaps dare die for a good person. So who is this good person? What's the difference between the two? Now, a righteous person keeps the law, and he is morally upright. The good person is more than that. He is both righteous and virtuous, and he is also charitable. He is benevolent, benevolent in love. And so because he is so loving, he is so uh, good, then one may dare to die for such a good person. But even that would be very, very rare. But the Lord did not die for any of those. No, there is no one righteous. No, not one. There is no one good. All are sinners. All have fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, no one seeks after God. No, not one. Christ came to save sinners, not the righteous. The Lord himself is quoted by Mark saying, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And the doctors in our midst know this. You don't go treating those who are well. Although, there is a serious problem in the world today. Because ever since COVID struck, everyone is treated as if he is sick. That's why we are wearing masks. Isn't it? Everyone, everyone is treated as if he is sick. And we have to test you even though they are not symptoms for you to travel. The world has been turned upside down. But the point is, those who are healthy really have no need of a doctor. COVID regulations will tell you, no, you need a doctor. Go get your test. And I ended up in that kind of a situation um, as I left the U.S. in Atlanta. I remember going to uh, for the test, and then I was told, no, you needed a wall checkup. And I had to pay consultation fees, exorbitant consultation fees for a doctor that I didn't need and for a doctor who didn't really need me, because that's what the Bible says, the physician has no need of healthy people, only for me to be declared to be given a clean bill of health. Praise God. Now, that's COVID regulations. I don't know whether we should thank God for them. Christ Jesus saying here that the well people, the healthy people have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he added, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There in Mark 2.17. So, it's not the righteous. Not the righteous we sing. Not the righteous we sing. Sinners, Jesus came to call. So, we sing, all of you who are weary, heavy laden, 
with sin. All of you who are lost and ruined by the fall, please don't wait until you are better because then you will never come at all. All the fitness the Lord requires is for you to feel your need of Him. So, the Lord pours His love into the hearts of sinners. He dies for those sinners. While they are still sinners, Christ died for them, for us. That's the demonstration. In fact, the word shouldn't be translated demonstration. It should be translated proof because this is the proof, not just the demonstration. Demonstration is a, is a two-week word of divine love to us, that Christ died while we were still sinners. The Lord didn't wait for us to be righteous because he would never be righteous. He didn't wait for us to be better because we could never be better. God's love is proved by the fact that he gave his only son for sinners, for rebels, for bad people, for us who are heavy laden with sin. So Paul says, but the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Even the king of sinners. And his blood can make the foulest sinner clean. What man of love is this? But Christ died. Not for good people, but for sinners. There's no doubt that the death of Christ for sinners is an indisputable proof of love, love divine, all loves, excelling. How many of you men who love your wives would be willing to take a bullet for her? How many of you would even say, please shoot my finger instead of shooting my wife? And you know that it's not going to kill you out of love. I notice that there is no heart lifted up because love divine, love exhaling dies. Die. I'm sorry, my dear sisters, but there is one who is way, way, way better than your husband, Lord Jesus Christ. He died. The death that we deserved as sinners. This is indisputable proof of his love. And whenever Paul thought about this love of Christ, he always thought of his death. Notice how he very almost casually mentions it in passing in Galatians 2.20. He says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. Because you see, love gives. 
And love gives the best. Love gives the most. Christ's death is indeed a demonstration of this love of God that is beyond all understanding. So we've just sung or we sing of that love. And we sing in another song, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, and free. Say that this love spreads his praise, that is Christ's praise, because of his love from shore to shore. Now, the Bible says, uh, the, 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 the hymn writer goes on to say, How he loveth, ever loveth, changeth never, nevermore. How he watches over his loved ones, died to call them all his own. How for them he intercedeth, watcheth over them from the throne. And then the the songwriter cannot help but go back to that refrain. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Love of every love. The best. That, that's like saying, the way we say king of kings, it's the love of every love. It is an ocean vast of blessing. It is a heaven sweet of rest. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. It is a heaven of heavens to me. If you're loved by God, if you're loved by Christ and Christ has died for you, even if you are not to go to heaven, heaven will have already been brought down here because it lifts me up to glory. It lifts me up to God. That's the love of Christ to see us. Seen us. That's not a casual remark. Love of Christ to seen us, and he died for seen us. Then, number four, Christ, Christ then by his death saved us from the wrath of, wrath of God. We were liable to the wrath of God. We were children of wrath. That's what we were children of wrath. And then, by his love, he turns us to be children of God. We are adopted into his family. We ask again, why did Jesus die? Why did he die the way he died? Verse 9 has this wonderful argument. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Our departed brother, Harrison Pro, had that wonderful comment where he said that uh, Jesus saved us. And then he would ask, saved us from what? He said, saved us from God. Saved us from God. How so? God has done the greater to justify us, to declare us righteous. At what cost 
the cost of his son. At the cost of his son. Think about that. At the cost of his son. And the argument here is from the greater to the lesser. Because God has done this great thing of giving his son, justifying us at the cost of his son. Why will he not give the less? The sure pledge that he will do the lesser, which is to save us from his wrath. This is in the future. And that argument proceeds to verse 10. But let us just deal with verse 9 to begin with. So we've been justified by his blood, blood of Christ, and thus saved by Christ from the wrath of God. And after justification has taken place, obviously after salvation has taken place, after the ransom has been paid, then there is sure redemption. So if the ransom has been paid, that's a greater, then the redemption has to take place. What is the greatest threat of sinners? Is it their sins or is it, is it the power of Satan? Obviously, those, those, are, those are threats. But which is the greatest threat? It's God's wrath. God's wrath against the sinners is the greatest danger. I mean, remember David himself said about the wrath of God and for which Jonathan Edwards preached. It's a terrible thing, an awful thing to fall into the hands, into the hand of angry, of angry God. The holy wrath of God consumes completely the weakened man, and nothing other than God himself can stop it. That's why God needed God to save us from the wrath of God. The greater thing was to give a son and for his son to die in the past. Now this has already happened in the fullness of time. Christ has already come. He has already been born of a virgin. He has already died upon the cross. He has been buried for three days. He has been raised from the dead. He is now at the right hand of God interceding for us. All those big things have already happened. What would stop the lesser? From happening. Right now, we are justified because of this objective, permanent, irreversible act of God in the history of redemption. And this is enough guarantee and assurance, this is sufficient deposit that the remaining installment would be paid. So we will be saved in the future from the wrath of God only through the blood of his son. There is no other way of salvation. What happened in the past, what theologians call the vicarious death of Christ, that is the substitute, the, the, that Christ died as a substitute for sinners who believe in him, 
what's happened now, that is our justification, is a sure proof that a time to come in eternity, we will be saved. The trajectory has already been set. It is, it is what the, the, the tweeters call. This is how it started. This is how it's headed. It's already been set for us. It, is, it started with Christ dying for us, saving us. And the way it's headed is that he will save us even in the future. It's not going to stop along the way. What happened in the past, that substitutionary atonement of Christ, that vicarious death of Christ, has already set everything on the right trajectory. We have been justified. We've been given the Holy Spirit who is sanctifying us. We are headed to glory. We cannot go to any other destination. We shall be saved from the wrath of God. Upon this basis. So you see, our salvation is both in the past and in the present and also in the future. Are we saved? Yes, we are saved. And sometimes I don't like people who keep on saying, oh, you see, for me, my salvation was a process and they go on and they go on. And they really don't mean what I'm talking about. What they are saying is that they are saved, but they are not so sure now. But it's a process because they go to church, they give, they sing, they pray. It's a process, they say. Are we saved? Yes, we are saved. That should be the answer. Are we being saved? Yes, because Christ Jesus did what he did for us in the past. Will we be saved? Yes, we will be saved. So there is a good amount of certainty and assurance because of the love of God that has been shed abroad, I mean shed, uh, poured into our hearts. So we are reconciled to God when we were his enemies. That cannot be reversed. This is the last point I'm making. Christ reconciled us to God when we were his enemies. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So we were God's enemies, rebels. We rebelled against God's law and against God's gospel. We, re we rejected God's grace. Our minds were set on worldly things. And our wills were bound to pleasing ourselves rather than God. We were what Paul describes in chapter 11, verse 28 of Romans, where he says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God. The Philippians were like that. Enemies of the cross. Philippians 3.18. And the Colossians were once alienated to God and hostile to God in mind and evil in deeds. Colossians 1.21. That was our condition. We were enemies. When God looked at us before conversion, he wanted to shoot us. When God looks at any sinner before conversion, 
he restrains his wrath, but really that's what they deserve. And when you're not saved, that's your condition. But the good news is not that you can you, you should remain as you are. The good news is that you could be reconciled to God by the death of his son. The enmity has been removed. And we are now fully and completely reconciled to God. And so the Colossians are told, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Colossians 1, 22 and 24. Thus shall we be saved, not just by his death, but also by his life. If his death did so much for us, how much more his life? The answer is obvious. As we rejoice in God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, even though right now, we may be going through trials and challenges. And please realize that when the Bible says that we were reconciled to God, it's also saying, implying, that we are now God's friends. God is our friend. The enmity has been taken away. The hostility has been removed. And the argument there in verse 10 is, since God has already done the, most, the more difficult thing, the reconciling us while we were his enemies, we have full and total confidence that he will do what by comparison is less, that is, he will at last save us now that we are his friends. What is the difference between justification, verse 9, and reconciliation, verse 10. Those two terms are distinct but close. Whereas justification is a legal declaration of our acquired status, that is, our righteousness, we've been declared righteous before God's law, mark those words. I'm trying to give you the distinction between justification and reconciliation. In justification, legally, we are put before the law and we are declared righteous on the basis of who? Of Christ. That's justification. Reconciliation is not us being put before the law. It is us being put before the Lord. And the relationship is that was broken up until now is restored. The relationship is mended. The hostility is removed. The enmity is taken away. The broken relationship with God is permanently repaired. That's reconciliation. So whereas in justification we are declared righteous on the basis of the alien righteousness from Christ, 
and God is fully satisfied with that, it is on the basis of that that we are brought to God, being reconciled to God, becoming children of God, becoming friends with God, adopted into his family. So, when we talk about justification, think about the law, think about the judge. When talking about reconciliation, think about relationship with God, relationship with the Lord. Think about God as your father. So Jesus uh, uh, has become or has made us to become friends with God just as he made Abraham. Remember from chapter 4? Yes? Abraham was a friend of God. Let me conclude by saying three things in application. Number one, all unbelievers are so helpless, weak, ungodly, needy, helpless, enemies of God. There is no more, there is no other status before God. There can never be anything else. No. That's what they are. Weak, sinners, ungodly, enemies, under the wrath of God. And that's why you need to plead with God today to initiate this loving relationship with you. We were like the ruined loincloth of Jeremiah 13. We were like that broken flask of Jeremiah 19. We were the bad figs of Jeremiah 24. We were like that faithless bride of Ezekiel 16. We were the Ohola and the Holiba of Ezekiel 23. We were like the dry bones of Ezekiel 37. We were like the Goma of Hosea. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. By grace, you are saved. Yes, we're dead in your trespasses, but he made us alive. And it didn't end there. And together sat us with Christ, fully reconciled, because by grace, you have been saved. What manner of love is found in God? What manner of love? Believers, believers should forever be thankful, rejoicing, boasting in the Lord, in the love of God, in Christ Jesus. He loved us 
unconditionally. He loved us eternally. He loved us forever. He's not going to change his mind. Amen? So, our salvation, which was planned before time began, accomplished in Christ the fullness of time, and realized in our own lifetime, will be fully fulfilled in eternity because of Christ. He's made us his friends. And uh, I want to encourage our music team to learn and teach us the hymn by James G. Small, which was recently done by Sovereign Grace, Jesus Fred of Sinus. I want to re just recite those words so that you can know what I'm talking about. Jesus Fred of Sinus loved before I knew him. Drew me with his cons of love, tightly bowed me to him. Round my heart still closely twined. The ties that none can sever, for I am his, and he is mine forever and forever. They go on to say, Jesus, Fred of Sinus, a crown of thorns you wore for me, bruised for my transgressions, pierced for my iniquities. The wrath of God that I deserved was poured out on the innocent. He took my place and my soul to save. Now I am his forever. Did you, did you hear what was poured into Christ? God's wrath. And what was poured into your heart? God's love. Jesus, Fred of Sinus, I love to tell this story. Redeeming love has been my theme and will be when in glory. Not death, nor life, nor anything can ever separate me Oh, love that will not let me go. Yes, I am his, and he is mine. Let's rise up to sing love divine. Oh, love's excelling. This is from Ephesians 
before the lost in that love and wonder in prayer this afternoon Lord is that each one of us may leave this place having experienced the depth of your love having known the vastness, the breath of your love. And having been a recipient of all of your love, so that the saints in our midst may live here rejoicing, having been so loved with love divine. The sinners would not dare live here without this love. Oh, Lord, once again, love divine, all loves exhaling. Joy of heaven on earth come down. Visit us, Lord, with your salvation. Finish now, Lord, your creation. We ask this in Christ's name.